And now, from beyond our dimension, this is the Jeff Mara Podcast. Here's Jeff. My guest is Mark Gober, a consciousness researcher and author of An End to Upside Down Thinking, who happens to be a former Wall Street banker working in Silicon Valley. He currently serves on the board of Apollo 14 astronaut Edgar Mitchell's Institute of Noetic Sciences, the School of Wholeness and Enlightenment. Today we'll be discussing consciousness, NDEs, aliens, and more. Mark, thank you so much for joining me today and welcome. Well, thank you for having me. In your opinion, what is consciousness and what is its relationship to the brain? That's one of the big questions I've been looking at throughout all of my books. Uh-huh. Uh, consciousness is a, it's something I talk about a lot, but it is difficult to define because it's not something that's physical. So I can point to a chair. I can point to my leg. These are all physical things. Consciousness is not something that I can touch. Uh, and yet it is the part of us that has the capacity for experience. So when I say that I'm speaking to you right now, that sense of I-ness is what I mean by consciousness. So it's our subjective awareness, our inner experience. Mm -hmm. And it is the part of us that absorbs our thoughts. So if we have a thought, what is the part of us that acknowledges the thought that's there? There's a consciousness that knows there's a thought. There's a consciousness that has the capacity to think about all of these things. Um, And I actually had never really thought about it in that deep away until several years ago when I started researching it, but it's, it's a fundamental aspect of all of our lives. We couldn't have an experience without consciousness. So understanding what it is and its relationship to our body and more specifically our brain is a very important issue, given that we wouldn't even be able to ponder these questions without a consciousness. Uh, and if you had asked me when I was in my undergrad years, whether consciousness comes from the brain, I would have said, of course it does, because don't we know from neuroscience that when you alter the brain, a person will have a corresponding change in consciousness. We know that clearly. And to give an example, if you alter the part of the brain responsible for vision, the person might have a corresponding change in the way that they see. So there's this very tight correlation between what happens in the brain and the type of conscious experience the person has. And what I hadn't thought about until I started researching was that that correlation is not sufficient to say that the brain is producing consciousness. And the analogy that uh, Dr. Bernardo Kastrup gives, he's a philosopher in this space. He says, imagine that you have a fire and there are firefighters that show up. You have a larger fire. There are more firefighters that show up. And he asked the question, did the firefighters cause the fire? And so what, he, what he's pointing out is it's not always the case that just because two things are closely related, that one necessarily causes the other. There can be other explanations. And to your question of does the brain relate to consciousness, what, what is the relationship there? I now think the brain doesn't create consciousness. It's very much involved in the way we experience life. But the brain is more like an antenna receiver, transmitter, or more precisely, It's like a filtering mechanism or a blindfold, meaning there's a much broader reality out there and the brain actually gets in the way and shows us a very limited sliver of this broader reality. So you think that consciousness is separate from the brain, but like a dual system. You don't think that consciousness actually creates the body, including the brain. I do. I do. I think that, that all reality is consciousness 
and that everything we perceive is in essence a modulation of consciousness. But in using language to describe the relationship, these analogies, which sound very dualistic, like a filter or an antenna where it creates a consciousness that's separate, it's really just an analogy or a metaphor. It's not precise. And the reason I like to use those is that it it's a stepping stone away from this mainstream assumption that the brain creates consciousness. It starts to put it in a new context. What, what you're hinting at, I think, is the ultimate truth. That's where my research points me, that there is only consciousness. The paradox, though, is that we exist in a world where clearly we, have, we perceive separation. There's a me and a you, and we ha I have access to my mind. You have access to your mind. There appears to be separation. Maybe there's telepathy every now and then, but there is this separation. And the analogy going back to Dr. Bernardo Castro that illustrates this paradox very well, he says, all reality is like one stream of water, an infinite stream where water represents consciousness. And each of us is a whirlpool within that stream, meaning there is the appearance of separation when in fact we're fundamentally interconnected. So there is both the interconnectedness and the separation. There's duality and non-duality and they coexist. So when we're talking Sometimes I, I move into the dualistic realm where the brain's an antenna that's a receiver, but it's really within the context of the non-duality of the oneness. And it's these are challenges, going back to your initial question of what is consciousness, using language, we're always going to distort the truth in some way. And yet we need to use language in order to communicate. What, in your opinion, is the mind in comparison to consciousness? So again, we're getting into human language, which is our way of trying to make sense of the world and communicate it to each other. So I, I know there are different definitions of mind versus consciousness. And the way that I like to think about it when I use these terms is that mind refers to the individual's experience of consciousness. So it's like the water within the whirlpool that is experienced by that individuation of the broader consciousness. So that which I personally experience as Mark is what I consider to be my mind, which includes the thoughts that pop into this individuated consciousness. What kind of contact do you think happens in near-death experiences? So a near-death experience, for those who aren't familiar with it, is an instance where a person is typically in some kind of physiological trauma. The most extreme cases would be like cardiac arrest. The person's in clinical death, and yet their consciousness is highly lucid. The researchers, like, for example, Dr. Bruce Grayson at the University of Virginia, he says uh, there's a paradox that at a time when the brain isn't functioning, the mind is functioning better than ever. So you get the brain out of the way and people experience this broader reality. They're resuscitated and then they report on what happened. Now to your question about contact, this is something that has come up throughout all my research during the years because I've been looking at near-death experiences a lot and people encounter what they call other intelligences. And there's a variety of types of beings that they report. Often they will report spiritual entities. Sometimes they call them beings of light, or they will say they saw Jesus, or they will say they saw some other religious affiliated entity, not always just Jesus. There are many others that are reported. Sometimes people report seeing deceased relatives. So there's a spectrum of types of intelligence that people encounter. And it appears to be happening in some other dimension of reality. It's almost like the filters unlocked and other parts of the stream of water are suddenly within the person's perception. So it's like their individual mind expands so that they are able to experience more. And these intelligences seem to exist and seem to communicate with them. I don't know if you're aware of Dolores Cannon's work 
and she talks about people that are here that are like soulless being like a bot in a video game and there's people existing here that just maybe don't even have consciousness i guess they're just kind of a living being like maybe we're all living in a simulation do you know much about that i've heard bits and pieces of it and i know there are like different definitions of what you might call a soulless being or simulation mm-hmm. um i i view reality to be the one consciousness experiencing itself through an infinite diversity of beings so it's experiencing life through me and through every other living being um, and all those experiences flow into the broader stream and you could call that a simulation in a sense it is um, especially if you consider the complexity of the universe and whatever mathematics is needed to create all of this stuff um, that's that has a simulation type vibe and the what you're describing from dolores cannon of these essentially soulless beings is that is that an now, accurate description th- yes there is a word and i just don't remember how she defines them there's like an actual label for them but as far as i know she said that don't even try to figure out who they are because we don't have the ability to do that yeah, I'm open to that. I mean, I haven't directly experienced one that I know of, mm-hmm. but it's it's very possible that there are, uh, I guess, biological entities that have. So I, I consider the bio- my biological entity to be filled with an aspect of consciousness that flows through this body, but maybe there are biological entities that have a different type of enlivenment, if we want to call it that. Right. So maybe. Um, there's something flowing through them, but it's not quite the same, or it's just a tiny bit of this consciousness or a spectrum of it. I don't know. I'm not saying that I know everything about it. I first heard about it from a guest and I was just kind of like blown away the first time I heard it. Maybe it's kind of like insects in a way, almost like a little robot. There's any consciousness in it at all. I don't, I don't know. Or it just might be that the, the vessel enables a certain type of consciousness to flow through it, whereas the human body has a different type that goes through it. Right. Because I would view all living beings as having some kind of consciousness flowing through. Mm-hmm. It just might be a different type because of what the vessel holds. Now, if there's no, no consciousness flowing through, then what would distinguish that being from just artificial intelligence, machinery that is not enlivened by anything metaphysical? I don't, it, gets, it gets confusing. I don't right. know the answer. <laughs> All right, let's get back to contact. So I've had some guests that say that they have either been to other planets during their NDE, and the most common one is the water planet, and some of them have encountered, you know, aliens like the greys. Where are you at on that? I think it's definitely possible in an NDE. I'd say the majority of the classic NDE cases typically don't discuss those, and but I'm mm-hmm. open to the possibility that that would happen. Um, I... In my research on contact, because I was looking at it broadly, not just UFOs, even though I did look at UFOs, I was really surprised to look at the research on DMT, dimethyltryptamine, because it relates somewhat to what you're describing, even though it's not a near-death experience. So this is a a psychedelic substance that's found in nature. It's produced by the human body, but it's typically decomposed very quickly. So we're Mm -hmm. not tripping all the time. Right. Whereas if someone takes ayahuasca, the plant brew has chemicals that keep keeps the DMT going. So people have otherworldly experiences. Dr. Rick Strassman from the University of New Mexico 
conducted a, a sanctioned study, which is amazing because these, it's an illegal drug and he was able to get it approved, where he was giving DMT to people intravenously. So he's creating this artificial flow of a very intense psychedelic and didn't quite know what he was going to encounter and was very surprised to find that contact appeared very often, that people's bodies were in one place, but their mind went to another realm and they encountered beings. He was even more surprised to find that people were reporting things commonly described in alien abductions, hmm. where they were operated on all the sorts of things you hear in a typical abduction case. And he didn't know much about abductions at the time. So actually John Mack, the Harvard psychiatrist, Pulitzer Prize winner who studied abductions, endorsed Strassman's book, because it's it's speaking to this notion that contact, whether it's with aliens or beings of light, and maybe they're the same sometimes, maybe they just appear different, or maybe they are different species, that there's a multidimensional aspect to this, that somehow unlocking our everyday perceptual um, apparatus brings us to these other realms where we can perceive different types of beings, which makes me very open to those sorts of NDE encounters. Now, I don't know why they would happen in some cases and not in others. And we also similarly don't fully understand why some people are resuscitated and don't have a near-death experience memory. So for example, in Dr. Pim Van Lommel's research, the Dutch cardiologist, he ran a famous study published in the Lancet Medical Journal, and he was looking at cardiac arrest survivors. And it was roughly 18% of cardiac arrest survivors had a near-death experience, which is remarkable because if you look at the physiology at the time, they shouldn't be able to have such a clear memory. But why did so many people not have a near-death experience or why did they not remember it? Maybe they did, but they just didn't have access to that memory. So what I'm getting at is there, there is variation in these experiences. And also with regard to uh, what people would call a positive or benevolent NDE versus a more hellish NDE, there are some, a minority of reported cases are very negative. Uh, the researchers don't seem to have as good a grasp on it because there isn't as great a consistency. Uh, the researcher, Dr. Gregory Shushan, who has examined cross-cultural near-death experiences, has commented on this in the cult cross-cultural research, that there's much less consistency in the negative NDEs, but they are reported. So all of this, to me, opens me up to the possibility that there could be these more alien-type experiences. Do you think that if a person gets enough DMT, it breaks down some kind of barrier so they can actually consciously travel, and that's how they're connecting with these other intelligences? I don't feel like I fully understand how DMT is doing this. Uh, what many speculate is that it is unlocking the filter that is normally there. And when you get to a certain threshold, I guess, of DMT and the IV uh, method that Dr. Strassman used seem to get, get through that threshold, mm -hmm. you, you break into the broader stream of awareness. Um, but I don't know what that does to the person on a more permanent basis. Does it leave the veil thinner afterward? I mean, I have heard cases of people who after doing psychedelics seem to have more synchronicities, they become more spiritual even afterwards. So there is a kind of a residue, mm -hmm. but it, it opens questions um, as to what is, I mean, some people would, would dismiss all this and say that the, the psychedelic is just creating a hallucination, which I tend not to agree with. Um, I, I think it's unlocking something that was already there and people are having this broader experience, which seems crazy to most of us who haven't that, had that experience, uh, but it's just tapping into the broader stream. Right. I've had Dr. Eben Alexander on, and he, I think, has also done D DMT. And he said it was, he thinks DMT is just kind of like a red heron. And I th from what I understood, the DMT experience wasn't the same as an NDE for him. 
And I've had, I think, one more guest who's had an NDE, and he kind of said the same thing. But I've never heard about injecting it intravenously and giving, you know, a continuous stream of it. So I wonder how, you know, it would play out if he or someone else who's had an NDE actually went through that. Yes, I wonder as well. And you're reminding me of the conversation I had with Dr. Bruce Grayson from the University of Virginia who studies NDEs for my podcast. I interviewed him and he mentioned that as well of someone who had a near-death experience and did DMT and said they were not the same. And for the, the average person studying this phenomenon, the language might sound very similar because people are describing something that they don't really have words Mm-hmm. that can adequately capture what happens. So it might sound very similar. And people will say, oh, well, the near-death experience is just some kind of DMT release or it's some some kind of chemical that's produced by the brain that gives the, the hallucinatory sense. And that's what one of the criticisms that Dr. Alexander has had to try to counter. Um, but it is powerful to me as well that people describe a difference. One thing that's fascinating is I have a personal acquaintance and he told me that he did DMT about seven times in a row in one day. And he said the very last time, everything went black and white. But I was wondering, since he said that, as if like the brain went to a limit where it lost all sensitivity to DMT and that, or it just exhausted itself. Or he reached some other plane of consciousness where that was the perceived experience. Yeah. I really don't know because there is a there is a spectrum of what people describe. Sometimes it's very fear-inducing. I mean, one of the reasons Dr. Strassman decided to stop the study is that he didn't feel like it was helping people. He, he felt ethically like it was problematic that he was sending people into this other dimension. They were encountering beings, sometimes having terrible experiences, sometimes good ones, but sometimes terrible. And um, he thought that was irresponsible. I don't think he used that word, but I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Right, uh, right. But basically- we don't know what we're opening ourselves up to. So when I hear that story, it might just be one aspect of this experience, or maybe you're right that the brain, it's sort of a, or as we're able to perceive it in this body, it reaches a limit. Hey, I'm glad you brought that up because there's another study I someone pointed out a while ago that I read that was a whole bunch of people that took DMT at the same time. Like, I don't know, a hundred people. And the fascinating thing was they all saw the same thing which were these beings. But I think most of them, if not all of them, also suffered PTSD from the event. Yeah, exactly. It's it's forcing something that the person's psyche might not be ready for. And in some cases, that can be spiritually transformative in a positive way, but in other Mm -hmm. cases, it can be traumatic. Since I've had people who have seen aliens on the other side during their NDE, I kind of feel that Aliens are now existing in this other realm. Do you have any information on that? I have not had a direct experience. So when Mm. I speak about these things, this is through what I've read about and what I've heard. Um, And that creates a challenge. In some ways, it creates objectivity, which is probably good, but it creates a challenge because I'm just trying to interpret other people's language and bring it into Mm -hmm. everyday thinking. Um, You're reminding me of something I do talk about in my new book, An End to Upside Down Contact, from John Mack, the Harvard psychiatrist, who was studying people who claimed to have had abductions. And his conclusion was that they were not psychotic, generally, that something very real was happening. And for me as a researcher, that was very powerful. In one of the case studies in his book, Abduction, he talks about, because he used the hypnosis technique where he would regress people into trying to remember what happened during their abduction, because sometimes they would have memories. uh, But those memories, after after going under hypnotic regression, would be revealed as either incomplete or somehow distorted. And the hypnosis seemed to bring about a clearer memory. 
And there was one of the cases where he was talking about uh, where a woman was describing her encounters with alien beings, but these beings were involved in her past lives as well and seemed to be guiding her soul from life to life. And that to me directly parallels what I've been researching in the between lives research, which is related to the near-death experience phenomenon of, of sort of bringing the person's soul to this other realm. And what I, what I wonder is, are these alien-type beings one of, or maybe the only, I don't know, let's just say one of the species involved in sort of guiding our souls through these other realms and from life to life? That's what I wonder. When a person has an alien encounter, what generally happens to them mentally and or spiritually? It seems to be a very, it causes a dramatic change in short. And it was interesting when I was researching this, that uh, Dr. Kenneth Ring from the University of Connecticut, he wrote a book called The Omega Project, where he compared people's near-death experiences to their UFO alien type encounters. And even though the nature of the experiences themselves had some differences, the results in terms of what it did to the person, there were many similarities, is that the person often became much more spiritual, not religious, but more spiritual after both of these types of experiences, even if they were traumatic in some way. And this is something that John Mack talked about as well, who was a psychiatrist. He saw the transformative potential of these encounters where um, it was so paradigm shifting in essence, that they couldn't look at the world in the same exact way. And we see that with near-death experiences. The person will come back and say, I have to change my job. They often get divorced. They become less materialistic. Everything changes for someone who has a near-death experience. And we see that with UFO encounters as well, or alien contact, because it shifts the paradigm. Even if in the case of some abductions where they, they're operated on and they feel violated, for example, it still is enough to shift their paradigm and create a change in their lives. Sometimes they become even more psychic. That's also described with near-death experiences. Mm -hmm. Electronics don't work as well. Mm -hmm. So there's some kind of a shift on a physical and metaphysical level that happens in these otherworldly encounters. Yeah, I agree. And I almost think it's just a shift in our consciousness, which translates into our bodies. I agree with you. Um, think, yeah, as the body is the vessel for consciousness. When right. the consciousness shift, maybe the interaction changes. So do you think people can induce non-human contact in other ways besides DMT, like through meditation or, or something like that? Well, it is often reported. And there's a great book out by Helene Wabe from the Institute of Noetic Sciences called The Science of Channeling. And this is the phenomenon whereby an external intelligence seems to inhabit the body in some way, whether it's through thoughts or whether the, that being speaks through the vocal cords of the living person. And that does seem to be induced often through a meditative state of a quieting of the brain. Also what's found in these cases is a uh, non-pathological level of personality dissociation. So dissociative identity disorder or multiple personality disorders where a person's mind is split. You have multiple actual personalities that are distinct from each other. And at a pathological level, that can be disruptive because people switch back and forth between actual different personalities. Mm. At a non-pathological level, it seems to just be a subtler way of letting go of the personality. And that seems to be associated with having in heightened psychic abilities. And it's also associated with near-death experiences and UFO encounters. That's what Kenneth Ring found, that there's something with dissociation that enables contact with other realms. Now, on a less pleasant note to, to your question about inducing contact, sometimes that this can be used in very negative ways. 
where, for example, in the U.S. government's MK Ultra program using mind control. So this is a way of torturing a person to split the personality on purpose. So using the mind, looking at it like a technology and saying, if we do X, Y, and Z to the person through torture and forget about what we're doing to them, it's going to split their mind because it's almost a protective mechanism. Um, what we see in some of the darker cults where they try to induce negative entities is that they will induce types of tor physical torture to split the mind and also to allow in other dark entities. So that's, there seem to be methods of doing this and it can be used for good or for evil, which is a theme that I talk about a lot in my book. How do you define an entity? Using the whirlpool analogy is it would be a different type of a whirlpool. And maybe it's on a multidimensional level. Maybe they're multidimensional whirlpools within this stream. So it's a it's a sense of indu an individuation of consciousness. Now, where it gets tricky is what you were describing earlier, that there might be a higher self, uh, multiple aspects. Mm -hmm. So an entity that is experienced might be a part of that, that broader whirlpool, so to speak, uh, higher self that we're interacting with, one aspect of it. We talk about entities from time to time, and is it like another consciousness, but it's still somehow lingering around our 3D world, just it's, you know, it doesn't have a body? Or is it coming from another dimension and then popping into this dimension and inhabiting someone's body? I wonder if it's all of the above, and it depends on the species. Mm. But there might be some that operate in different ways that are not physical. Others might be partially physical. And maybe there are states of being that we don't, we can't comprehend. And one of the reasons I think that is that when I looked at the abduction research, people will describe their experience as dreamlike often, but they might say, it's not a dream, but that's the only word that I can use to describe the state that I was in. I know it wasn't a dream, but it had this dreamlike quality. So I think what they're getting at is some kind of transcendent state of consciousness that we, many of us haven't experienced. And that makes me wonder what, are, what other, how many of those types of states exist and if they exist, then what types of beings could inhabit those dimensions of consciousness? And maybe there are different types within different dimensions who all have the capacity to interact with us here. Where are you personally on your own spiritual journey? Well, it's ongoing is the way I would put it. I think it's never ending. Um, in my second book, An End to Upside Down Living, I, I describe my overall approach, which has not changed in many ways. The approach hasn't. I think my own, like the ups and downs change mm -hmm. based on circumstances. But I think we're all here in some, to some degree to evolve our consciousness and to move toward the state that people describe in near-death experiences and other transcendent states. They call it unconditional love. That's like the closest terminology they can use. So I think we're trying to get to that state individually, and we grow by trying to treat people well. I mean, that's a simple one, but also to really look at our, the darkness within us and whatever trauma we need to let go of in order to transcend the, the more egoic state. So these are all things that I'm trying, I, I work on constantly. And another part of it that I've gotten to more in the last two books in End to Upside Down Liberty and Contact is this notion of, of dark light, good, evil, because on an individual level, I think we're trying to conquer and transcend that in order to evolve. But I also see it on a collective level that we have to acknowledge. We can't just spiritually bypass things because they're unpleasant to try to look at things um, and to 
acknowledge them for what they are and to transmute something negative into something positive. But it starts with acknowledging it. And it also incorporates the process of discernment, which especially in this realm of aliens is uh, it, it becomes paramount because how can we know whether a being is, has our best interests at heart or if it's yeah. a trickster. Right. And we see that in our world today. So I think discernment is a big part of my own personal spiritual path that I'm constantly thinking about, but more broadly, I think for, for all of us, it's important. It's interesting that you bring that up. I've had one guest that we talked about that during a near-death experience, the beings that you meet on the other side are just tricking you and forcing you to come back and they live off of our negative energy. Do you think that is possible? <laughs> I've heard people speculate it. I don't know how we would prove it. I mean, right. sure it is. I don't know. Uh, but it, that's, it would be disturbing. And I do think there are dark entities out there, um, but I don't know. I have heard people speculate that every entity is negative. Um, I, I have a hard time thinking, believing that every entity encountered is negative just because of my own experience personally. Mm. I think as human beings, there is the positive and the negative, and I've experienced that positive. And I think it would be, I don't think that only exists within me. I think that is just part of consciousness itself. So I think there's a spectrum. Um, and who knows, maybe that could happen in some cases. Maybe, I don't know. I don't know how these dimensions work. Maybe some of them are tricksters. Maybe some of them aren't. Right. How would we know that? Yeah, that's a good point. All right. Back to you personally. Have you taken DMT, ayahuasca? Have you just started, you know, meditating, trying to have an out-of-body experience or any of, anything like that? I've been limited in the types of experiences I've had. For me, it's been very much an intellectual uh, endeavor since the beginning. I mean, when I started off in 2016, I was just listening to podcasts, and then I realized there was something here and started reading books. And as I was doing that, I began to have synchronicities, mm. weird coincidences that would happen over and over again to the point that it was in my face, mm. that if I ran the numbers in my head, it was beyond chance. And this mm -hmm. kept happening. So that was very mystical for me. It still happens, but it, at that time it was so jarring because I was not of this perspective. I was a total materialist, mm -hmm. atheist, agnostic at the time. That was jarring. And then I also worked with lots of psychics because I said, okay, if this research is real, then people should be able to do things. And sometimes the psychics did things that totally blew me away. So that was a spiritually transformative because mm -hmm. it, it blew my paradigm open. But in terms of more experiential stuff, the, the most profound experiences I've had have been in meditation. And there are two instances that I often speak about. They were short, but very profound because I, I, I can't deny what I experienced, let's put it that way. And both of them followed retreats. And uh, one was in 2019. It was a, a Kriya yoga retreat. It was not super intense. The other one was a week-long med silent meditation retreat. But both times I came back and I meditated and, the, and something similar happened where I was in this state of meditation where... I had the, the mental posture of, I don't need anything anymore. Mm. Like let whatever happens happen because I just don't need anything. I really, I'm okay. That's good. And, and when that happened, um, this light energy came in and I don't mean an external being. It just felt, I'm just, I'm trying to use words here. Um, that whatever density I felt in my body was replaced with a lightness. So it felt light, but it was overwhelming. And if it had the quality, the closest word I could use to describe it is love, but I don't think that was it because it was way in terms of the pleasure, it was way beyond that. And my body shut it down both times. It felt like I was going to die. Hmm. It was so intense. 
that actually the second time it happened, my, my sense in the split moment was that I was going to disappear and I didn't want to disappear because people would be upset if I just disappeared. That was the thinking that happened very quickly. And then my body shut down. Now, since those experiences, and I went on that one meditation retreat I mentioned in 2020, then I took a week off and then went on a second silent meditation retreat for a week. And before, before 2020, even though I went on that one in 2019, I could barely meditate for 15 minutes at a time. I went on those retreats in 2020 and I started to feel energy at the retreats. I didn't have those major experience at the retreats, but I, I felt pounding in this location where you call the third eye. At the time, I was like, what's why is my forehead pounding? And then I realized, oh, I've researched the third eye and this is what people have described. And I started to feel this energetic sensation, which continues today in different forms, where it's a it's sort of a mini, mini version of those more dramatic type experiences. Now, all that's to say, I, it's been very much in this body. So I haven't had these otherworldly type experiences. I haven't had a direct encounter with the being. I mean, I've talked to people who channel and those channeled beings have spoken to me, um, but I haven't had a direct encounter where I've seen a being. So you've had, you've had beings speak to you, you're saying? Yeah. And how did you hear them? Did you hear them as, as like in your own voice or a completely different voice? I mean, when I've, I've spoken to people who channel beings and oh. that being has spoken through the vocal cords of the other person, oh. I have not heard voices myself, but I, I do wonder about things like creative insights. Where do ideas come from? I mean, maybe some of us are having contact all the time mm-hmm. in a very subtle manner that we don't realize, but no, I've never had a dramatic type of encounter, certainly not in the physical, but I haven't heard. Sometimes people will say they heard a voice and they knew it was a being, for example, and I've never had that. All right. I was thinking about asking you, are psychics real? And I feel like you've already answered that, but can you tell us those extraordinary experiences you've had with them? Yeah. And I should preface this by saying that my research leads me to believe that we are all psychic inherently, even though it's very subtle. So let me give the classic study for this because it will color the rest of my answer here. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called the Gonsfeld experiment where you have two people separated. One's in one room put into a very relaxed state. We'll call that person Bob. Jane is in another room and Jane is shown by the experimenters an image of something. And Bob doesn't know what Jane's looking at. Bob's just relaxed. And the experimenters tell Jane, who doesn't claim to have psychic abilities, they say, Jane, I want you to try to mentally send what you're looking at into Bob's mind telepathically. So she does that for a while. Bob comes out of his relaxed state and the experimenters show him four images. And they say, Bob, which of the four was Jane trying to send to you mentally? Mm. Now, if people were not psychic at all, we would guess that the person in Bob's room on average in the long run would guess correctly one out of four times. It should just be totally random. But the studies show that the person in Bob's room guesses correctly roughly 32% of the time which using statistics is massively significant, meaning something beyond chance is getting through. Some water from one whirlpool is getting into another whirlpool. So at that level, I think all people have a baseline level of psychic functioning, even though it's very subtle and maybe it takes statistics to detect it. And maybe it just pops up every now and then where we just think of something and then it happens and then we dismiss it. Very subtle. But just like with sports, I think you have people like who can dribble a basketball and then you have someone like LeBron James, who's a superstar. There's a spectrum of abilities, some of which might be innate and some of which might be things that you train yourself to do through meditation and other things with the brain. So I do think, number one, all people are psychic to some degree. And I do think there are superstars 
And the U.S. government ran a psychic spying program. Mm -hmm. I interviewed Russell Targ for my podcast, who was one of the leaders of the program in the 70s. They used psychic spying, the all-stars of psychics, for national security purposes. So I do think it's real. I don't think it's necessarily 100% accurate. And that's a caution I give when people want to engage with psychics, because if you take every word literally, maybe that what if they're right 90% of the time and you take the 10% super literally and you change the course of your life because of that and you make a mistake. And we should mention, mention uh, trickster beings. Uh, in my second book, An End Upside Down Living, I give a caution about channeling. A woman was describing her channeling abilities and she was hearing these beings. They were guiding her life and they told her to quit her job. Mm. And apparently it, it was a really bad decision and she decided to do it anyway. And after she, after she did it and realized it was a bad decision, the beings began laughing and told her she should commit suicide. So these were trickster entities. And so I, I give that caution also with regard to psychics. Now to your question about some of the more remarkable experiences, I'm trying to think back. Um, one of them was with a medical medium who had never met me before. And I was speaking to her over the phone so she couldn't see me. And she had me point to a spot on my body where I had a skin irritation mm -hmm. that was maybe a week before or something. It was gone. But she pointed to the exact point on my body. She had me go in front of the mirror and like point. And I just remember thinking at the time, I was like, oh, what is, I don't remember what that is. And then I realized that I, there, were, there was something there. That was very jarring. Um, and there are a few other cases like that where the person knew something about me. Um, okay. Another case, this was all like 2016, 2017. So they're, they're coming back where, um, my, after writing my first book and into upside down thinking, I just finished the draft of the book. And at the end of the book, I, a lot of that book is the science of psychic phenomena and survival of bodily death. And at the end of it, it gets more philosophical about interconnected consciousness and just spiritual philosophy. And I was really excited at the time because I was able to incorporate Dr. David Hawkins into the book, who at the time was new to me. And I, I still really respect his spiritual work as a former psychiatrist. And I was just was so excited that I was able to incorporate his work in this book to the point where I was telling a few friends about it. And I, I spoke with a psychic who was channeling entities and who didn't know what, what I had just written and said, Have you, are you familiar with the work of David Hawkins? Because he's guiding your work because he, he's deceased. And I stopped in my tracks when she said that because I had never spoken to her about David Hawkins before. And here I was just so excited about having incorporated his work in my book. That's great. In your new book, you talk about the relationship of nukes and UFOs. Can you tell us more about that? So I'm referring to the work of Robert Hastings, who has written an amazing book it's in the range of 500 pages long of his investigations of these alleged cases of people who worked at nuclear weapons facilities and claim that there were other types of technologies there that were turning the nukes on or off. And if you go through the case after case of this, it's pretty incredible. It's, it seems like something seems to be going on. And there's been a lot of speculation. Like, why would this be? Why, if let's assume that they're not just government technologies. Um, let's say, assume that there are other intelligences. We don't know for sure. Alien operated or something like that. Why would they have an interest in nuclear weapons facilities rather than other things? There are sightings, of course, elsewhere, but there, there's a concentration in nuclear weapons facilities. And I was listening to an interview by Philip Corso Jr., who was the son of Philip Corso, who had the famous, uh, he wrote the book The Day After Roswell, 
-hmm. He claims to have been involved in research and development of technology that was uh, collected in Roswell in 1947 and the decades following. He claims um, many of those technologies were used by the government and put into the world. So lots of technologies that we use came from Roswell. So he wrote a book about it. It's often disputed, but his son, uh, Philip Corso himself has passed away, but his son is still speaking about the events. And he claims, his son claims that his father knew Edward Teller, who was very much involved in the nuclear technology around the nuclear bomb, hydrogen, hydrogen bomb. And what Teller told his father was that the, the explosions impacted other dimensions. And because of that, we were upsetting these intelligences that inhabit these other dimensions. And therefore, around the time of World War II, they became very interested in what we're doing here because they didn't want it to be disrupted and whatever damage we could do to them. So the, the impression that Philip Corso Jr. gave was that these beings started to come here and they pay attention to nuclear weapons in particular to protect themselves. It's not about trying to protect humanity. It's they don't want us messing around with technology that could actually hurt them in other dimensions. Do you feel pretty pretty certain that we will never have a nuclear war? I feel relatively less concerned about nuclear war based on this research, because it does seem that these beings can turn do nukes off. And it's, it seems like it's possible that they could help us avoid major catastrophe. Although maybe they, maybe I'm wrong. There seems to be a lot more whistleblowers coming forward more than ever. Do you think they're all legit or people that are just looking for, you know, fame and fortune? I think there might be some fame and fortune, although in many of the cases, there's there's so much ridicule that comes with describing these things that um, either they're misguided or in some cases, maybe they, um, they they're they're legit. But in other cases, maybe they're giving false information. So they're, they're paid different disinformation agents. I think there is some of that where false narratives are are given. But at the same time, some people seem very genuine. And when you start to see overlap in testimony, where it's very bizarre details that people are describing independently, that's when I start to get interested. And it makes me think that at least some of the whistleblowers are real. All the new UFO um, evidence that's out there, do you think that's really UFOs? Or do you think that's new technology that just hasn't been let out to the population yet? Yeah. I tend to be not very trusting of what the government narratives are. If we look historically, I think it would make a rational person not trust their narratives. So I, I don't know what to make of what they're releasing. I, I, I tend to think the government is strategic in what it's releasing, that there is something that they're trying to do to the, the human psyche or to the psyche of the population. But without knowing what they're trying to do, it's hard for me to discern uh, what exactly the message is. Do you think that they're preparing us? They already know the you know ETs are there and they're preparing us for the inevitable that's going to happen. They just kind of soft disclosure to us. I've heard that speculation, and it might be a way to try to cover themselves because there has been at least decades of cover up. And as more and more whistleblowers come forward, and there's this seems to be a grassroots awakening to this, it will make them seem less dishonest potentially if they dribble out pieces of information where they can say, oh, well, at least we told you X, Y, and Z. I wonder about that. But again, I don't, I really don't know. Are we living through a spiritual war of good versus evil right now? Increasingly, I think we are. I think we see that playing out on our own planet, but it's probably a reflection of something 
on a multidimensional level. And in my book, An End Upside Down Contact, I try to survey contact, um, not only with UFOs, but in other other types of instances like near-death experiences, and look at the types of beings that are encountered. And we see a spectrum from what appear to be really divine, benevolent beings mm. to much darker beings who want to enslave and, and violate people. So if those energies exist, and if we are tapping into energies in other dimensions, because our, our body is attuned to that, then what is happening on the planet could actually be influenced by these other beings, even if it's not within our conscious awareness. What is your take on the Galactic Federation? Something that comes up in my research a lot. Many psychics claim that they have, they have encounters with the Galactic Federation. Um, in, in the end of 2020, Haim Eshed, who was uh, high up in, in Israel's government agencies, came out and, and said that there's a Galactic Federation. NBC News reported on this. Mm -hmm. Remarkable stuff. Um, also, the Farsight Institute, which does remote viewing exercises on historical events, for example, they have multiple remote viewers mentally try to see what happened with their mind. Um, and apparently what comes up in many of their readings is that there is a Galactic Federation and that this entity exists and is generally benevolent, at least the one they're tapping into, maybe there are multiple, I don't know, but the one they're tapping into seems to be benevolent and has a policy of, of non-intervention in that it wants us to learn lessons, it wants to help us, but it will not intervene in certain instances because we might need to make mistakes in order to learn, which actually resonates a lot with me in terms of how I think about spirituality. And actually my second book, my third book in End Upside Down Liberty, I talk about this principle of, of basically allowing people to, to be free and make decisions on their own, even if it means that people will make mistakes because mistakes are part of our growth. And uh, sometimes that's a difficult concept for people to wrap their minds around. I've had to think about it a lot. And mm -hmm. it also relates to what some people describe in between lives, memories, where people are in this phase, apparently of planning the next life. Right. Uh, Robert Schwartz wrote a book, Your Soul's Plan on this. this. The notion is that we plan events in our life or we plan a body that might give us challenges and it might be unpleasant and lead to suffering because it will, it, it will stimulate our evolution. And that is the same theme that I've heard about with this Galactic Federation. So there's a, a spiritual symmetry to it, which is difficult for the human mind to wrap our heads around. But it, at a high level, it seems like it's a pretty advanced concept. So I'm open to it. Do you think Haim Ashed is possibly, you know, giving out false information? It's always possible. Always possible. Always I found, possible. <laughs> I found the most interesting thing that he said along with that report is, that space is not what you think it is. What do you think it is? I don't know. <laughs> I haven't, at least I don't have any conscious experience mm -hmm. of being there. I mean, um, I'm on the board of Institute of Noetic Sciences and it was founded by Dr. Edgar Mitchell, who claims to have had, I never met him. I joined the Institute after he passed away. Mm -hmm. uh, but he claims that when he was in space, he had this oneness experience that changed the course of his life. He felt, he saw the vastness of space and he felt the interconnectivity of everything. Mm -hmm. And he came back and he founded the Institute of Noetic Sciences to be able to study this stuff scientifically. So it's really hard without having a personal experience of what it is to really answer it though. How do you think aliens are traveling here over such long distances? Is it through wormholes or do you think that they're entering some kind of conscious realm and can move at the speed of thought? 
Well, I, some people would say that that the aliens are actually here. They're close by, either underground or underwater. I've heard that very often. Mm-hmm. So maybe some of the species coexist with us in ways that we just we don't perceive it, or maybe they're here um, in a different dimension, but close by. Now, with regard to question, your question about this, the broader universe, um, I do think about that a lot too. And maybe they have technologies that enable travel in ways that we can't comprehend. And especially if we think about phenomena like quantum entanglement, uh, it would make possible the idea of, of distant travel in ways that you know would be mind-blowing to us. But um, the notion of entanglement is when you have two particles that are far apart, when one of them is affected, the other one is affected simultaneously in a correlated manner. And the implication there is that something is happening beyond the speed of light that there's a connection that exists. Albert Einstein was very resistant to this idea because he was all about the speed of light. He called this spooky action at a distance and tried to disprove it. And in fact, when he was trying to disprove it, he actually further proved that it was a real phenomenon. So this is a scientifically established phenomenon of two things far away that are interconnected, instantaneously connected. Now, I don't know how that would apply to intergalactic stuff, but at least conceptually, it opens the possibility of a lot of things. Do you ever think about gravity and anti-gravity and how can anti-gravity be achieved? I thought about it a little bit and it's, it's beyond what I understand. That's my short answer. Hmm. I just feel like our, our modern physics is so primitive. I mean, we know that 96% of the universe roughly is dark matter and dark energy, meaning we know something is there, but we don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. And we, we, we know certain things about Newtonian physics, which is like, you know, on a physics on a big scale, you drop an apple and it falls down. Um, we know things on the, the smaller quantum scale, even though quantum stuff applies to the bigger scale. Typically, people are talking about um, tiny particles doing weird things, but physics has a hard time integrating quantum mechanics and Newtonian physics. The equations apparently don't work. So there's something missing in our basic physics when we have these two branches that are so powerful on their own and that have been studied and we can't, they seem to be incompatible with each other. That indicates we're missing something big. And therefore to think about principles like anti-gravity, I think we have to, it probably starts with the re-understanding of physics or, or reconceptualization. In your book, An End to Upside Down Contact, you talk about the six fallacies of contact. Can you briefly tell us what they are? Yes. So the first one is, and the book seeks to show that these fallacies are indeed fallacies. Um, the first one is that there is no contact with non-human intelligence. And I think listeners on your show know there's lots of evidence for that, whether it's UFO contact or non-UFO contact. But there are lots of people who would say the contact is all rubbish. This is, this is not real. So I wanted to establish that. Um, and some people would say that contact, they, they might believe in contact, but they'll say, well, this is just a physical phenomenon. Let's study the nuts and bolts of the craft and try to understand the technologies. Maybe it's anti-gravity that they're using. How are they doing this stuff? And I'd say that's all valid. But the fallacy is that it's not just a physical phenomenon. As we've discussed, there's a phenomenon that we might call other dimensional a phenomenon of consciousness. There's a spiritual dimension to all of this, which I feel like is sometimes overlooked in UFO related discussions or discussions of contact. So that was a, really important for me to want to include in the book. And then the nature of the beings themselves. I've heard some people who want to just focus on the benevolent beings and say they're all benevolent and the reverse. 
They're all evil. And I think it's a spectrum, like we discussed. Uh, the fifth fallacy that I talk about is the notion that contact is just a recent phenomenon. And yeah, we've heard more reports since the 1940s, when World War II, and since uh, aircraft have been invented, we've seen more and more accounts of this. But looking historically, there are many descriptions, which if we know what we know now about modern technology, we could apply that technology to the words they were using and say, maybe that person was having an alien encounter, like Ezekiel's vision, for example, mm -hmm. many other cases. Uh, Native Americans and many other tribes around the world have talked about the sky people or the star gods that came down and taught them knowledge. So if you look at history with a different lens and, and study ancient culture and anthropology, it, this does not seem to be just a recent phenomenon. It's, it's ancient. And the last fallacy, which I think is the, the hardest to fully prove, I, I believe it's a fallacy, but it's, it requires a bit more inference, is the idea that contact is not just a fringe phenomenon, that it's playing a, a vital role in the direction of our world, meaning these beings are impacting people at a high level within our society. And those people at a high level who have an influence, big influence, like in political spheres over the whole world. Um, I do think that there's a connection there. It's not just a fringe phenomenon. And that's something I discuss in the book. Whenever you meet somebody that says, I don't believe, you know, until an alien lands in Walmart parking lot, I don't believe aliens are real. How do you convince those people? There's some people, and I, I've had to learn this, that <laughs> they're not convincible that, that no matter what evidence you show them, they're not going to look at it. And I, it was a learning experience for me in my first book and then to upside down thinking where the whole book is until the end where it's more philosophical. The book is evidence for remote viewing, telepathy, near death experiences. I put all the studies in one place for each of these phenomena, mediumship, children with past life memories, psychokinesis, like chapter on each one. So overwhelming. If you look at all the scientific studies, people at university of Virginia, Nobel prize winner, Brian Josephson, like so many credible people. And the, some people are open to that, but others will will stop reading it or they'll say, no, this is this is not real somehow. So there's a, a psychological barrier for certain individuals. And that's I guess it's not my job or anyone's job to try to convince. That's what I think now. What I like to do is to put information out there and those who are open to it, it's for them. And your question also reminded me of uh, what Kerry Mullis said. He's a Nobel Prize winner in chemistry. He claims he had an encounter with a glowing raccoon in the woods who said something to him like, hello, doctor, good evening, doctor. And then he had missing time, came back, his flashlight was gone. And he said something to the effect of, we can't bring this stuff into a lab. It's called anecdotal evidence, but that doesn't mean it didn't happen because it's real. I'm paraphrasing. Uh, so you need people that are willing to accept that sort of evidence. And for me, when, when it has to be anecdotal, when we can't look at the statistics like that telepathy study I mentioned of the 32%, um, when we don't have that kind of ability, then it's like a Venn diagram. That's what I describe in my book, where we try to find the overlap in all of these anecdotes. And when you have lots of people in independent domains describing similar things, to me, that's very powerful. And that's what I like to try to do for someone who says, Mark, I'm open-minded, please convince me. And they're genuine in that. I try to show evidence in many domains not just one case study. And that seems to at least open people up, but ultimately the person has to want to have a paradigm shift. Do you think that an advanced species manipulated humanity at our inception? I'm increasingly open to this idea. And I spent some time looking at scholars who have examined ancient literature 
including the Bible. You mentioned Paul Wallace earlier, mm-hmm. the Australian archdeacon who had a traditionally Christian uh, outlook on things and now looks at the Bible and other ancient stories from the lens that there were extraterrestrial beings or advanced intelligences that were uh, manipulating or just involved in our inception. And some would argue that we have been genetically modified. I mean, some people look at Genesis that way, that the, the term Elohim, which is one of the words used to describe God, is a plural term. Right. And if we apply that term to, if you read the Bible with that lens, like Paul Wallace and some others have, then you could say that this was a group of advanced beings that seeded humanity. And Adam was the first hybrid, for example. Zechariah Sitchin, who looked at the Sumerian tablets, he has made that claim as well. And um, looking at, I mean, Paul Wallace talks about ancient abduction cases, like the Mami Wata, as they're called in Ghana and some other places around the world of beings that came and have abducted people to conduct hybridization programs. I mean, these stories, again, if we get to this idea of independent accounts with similar themes, um, I'm, I'm open to that because of the, the number of cases that seem to overlap. Also, I mentioned in my book, Joe McMonigle, who was a, a famous remote viewer for the U.S. government's psychic spying program. Uh, he was asked to remote view by uh, Robert Monroe, of the Monroe Institute. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the exact phrasing, but something like hum- humanity's origin. And he described in his remote viewing something like a laboratory, and he was describing things like genetic splicing and grafting. So this is a theme that comes up. And if we look at our own civilization and our own technology, we're able to do things with genetic modification that would have seemed like science fiction 100 years ago. DNA is relatively new in, in our modern scientific paradigm. So imagine if you had a species much more advanced than us, this would be like easy for them to create us. So I think the fact, the fact that we have independent accounts that could be construed to show this, and also the fact that we don't even understand our own DNA yet, there's a lot to be uncovered, that makes me very much open to this. Do you think that the aliens created us as a slave labor force? Well, some do speculate uh, about that. And in Genesis, some of the language could be interpreted that that man was made to work. Um, I don't know how we'd ever prove these things, but it's it, it, I'm open to it. And I, I should also mention the Nag Hammadi scriptures, which were found in a jar in Egypt in 1945, but they come from 200, 300, 400 AD. So these are ancient scriptures that were hidden because apparently they were heretical teachings, which automatically makes me interested when if it was a teaching that, that the, the church didn't want, why, why was it so heretical? And the theme of, of the origin stories within the Nag Hammadi scriptures, because there are many different, uh, I don't know, they're like mini parables almost, um, uh, there's many scriptures within the whole bundle, and they're somewhat independent, but they, the ones that describe origin stories have a similar vibe to them, which is that there was one consciousness, like we discussed earlier, and from that one consciousness, there were different entities that there were individuations that spun off from it, one of which was Sophia. That's the name given in the Nag Hammadi scriptures, and Sophia apparently had a rogue son, and that rogue son created our world and kept us in a state of ignorance. So we have the divine spark because we have a fundamental connection to the oneness, but this entity that is malevolent wants to keep us suppressed. 
And one of the lines, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase it, is that the rulers kept humanity in a state of confusion and toil so that they would be distracted with the things of the world and wouldn't have time to focus on the Holy Spirit. That's what the scripture says. And I think about our world today and my old mindset, I was in a robotic mindset. I didn't have time to think about this stuff. There seems to be a suppression. So I'm open to this too. Overall, do you think the hybridization project has been a positive or negative thing for humanity? There are different opinions on this. John Mack, for example, Mary Rodwell, another researcher, tend to take a more benevolent take on this hybridization idea. So again, hybridization is the is the notion that people, human beings are abducted and their genetics are taken. So eggs are taken, sperm is extracted. Sometimes there's insemination and there are beings created who are part human, part alien. And then the question that is often asked is what, what is this for? Are they creating a species that in John Mack's words is an evolutionary insurance program? That's what he was hearing from people who, who had these encounters that maybe if we destroy ourselves on the planet, at least there'll be some other being to inhabit the planet for us. And there's speculation that that these advanced beings seed other planets, including Earth. So they need to have another species to be able to put them on planets for who knows what reason. Um, and in those cases, the the vibe is much is benevolent that the, that it's not they're not trying to hurt us in the process, even though it might be traumatic for some people. There's a darker perspective on this. It's come from some researchers, including Dr. David Jacobs from Temple University, who's also interviewed many people who have had abductions. And they talk about hybridization, just like we hear elsewhere. But what he started to hear, he start, he felt a, there was a change in the reports over time. And his most recent book called Walking Among Us, he thinks that the aliens are trying to take over the planet, <laughs> that mm-hmm. they're creating hybrids that become indistinguishable from humans. So they are just like us, except they have enhanced mental telepathic capacities, mind control capacities. So they will walk among us and take us over from within. That's his perspective that this is a a dark takeover. I don't know what to make of it because I hear such strong opinions on both sides. And it makes me wonder if there are aspects of truth and maybe there are different species involved in it. Uh, But again, this is one where I just don't know. What do you think is the most important point to your book and into Upside Down Contact? If I were to summarize it very concisely, I would say that we're not alone and these beings are impacting our world. Now, if you compare that statement to the mainstream consensus reality, it's a it's a mind blower. Uh, So the implications are, are, are so massive. And what I try to do in the book is put all the evidence in one place, acknowledging that I don't know for sure that every anecdote is true because I I don't know. Again, when I see overlap in independent accounts, that's where it starts to become strong. And I try to provide that journey for readers who don't necessarily, they might not have the time to go through all these piles of books and interviews and things like that. I try to put it in one place where they can start to see that overlap and say, wow, that's really interesting that people are saying this. I haven't personally experienced this, but just because I haven't had an experience doesn't mean that it's not true. And when people start to have that opening, I found it it can be transformative in a very positive way, because then one starts to look at life in a much, uh, in a less narrow way. And for me, that's been very positive overall. All right, you have four books out. Are you working on another one? Each time I write a book, I think to myself, I can't imagine that I would write another one. <laughs> I mean, I wrote my first one, which I didn't expect to do. I mean, that was not the plan initially. And people were saying, you're going to write another book. What's it going to be about? And I would say, what are you talking about? It would take so much 
more research to even have a topic to write about. And that's where I am now, four books later. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't have a fifth one ready to go. And usually when these books happen, they happen quickly. So the contact, I mean, all the books, the writing process mm-hmm. of actually typing it out happens within the course of a few weeks. Mm-hmm. It happens fast, but the the writing of the book is really the research, all that happens before it. And often when I'm doing the research, I don't know I'm doing research for a book. So what I do is I research things that I'm interested in. I don't know why I'm interested in a topic at the time, and I just follow it, and I'm going to continue doing that. Maybe it will lead to other books. Maybe it won't. I don't know. Do you think it's possible that you know you are channeling some aspect of yourself or some other being is contacting you, pushing you in that direction? I'm often asked that. It kind of feels that way when I'm doing it because there's a smoothness to the process that feels beyond my personal capability, but it doesn't feel like a being is speaking to me. It's more that when I look at it in hindsight, after I write the book and then read the first draft, for example, I'm like, how did that happen so quickly? Mm-hmm. How did I just happen to read that line in the, on that page in this book at the right time? There's a weirdness. Each, each time the books happen, there's something that I don't know what to call it. It's like I'm in a different zone. And I used to be a competitive tennis player. Um, I was one of the captains of the tennis team at Princeton. So there's a, a parallel to that of like being in the zone in sports. I feel that happens with these books. And maybe when you're in the zone, you're more tapped in. Now, I will say that before I write my books, um, I, I set a very clear intention. This even I did this with my first book when I wrote it in 2017, that the I'm writing the book for the highest benefit of anyone that reads it. And if there are other intelligences that can contribute to that, I ask for help in the process. Hmm. So I do, I do set that intention, um, but I don't, I don't experience beings in the way that so many other people do. It, it feels like it's me, even though it might not be. Well, do you have anything that you're working on that you want us to know about? I don't have any new projects. Um, what I'm trying to do is I, I still um, am trying to get the word out about my first four books. I mean, my first book came out in 2018. So there's a process of just letting people know that all these things exist as a, as a somewhat new author and someone who came from the business world. Um, enter this sphere, I'm still pretty new. So I don't have any new projects. If someone wanted to get one of your books, do they find them on Amazon, your website, or both? They're available on Amazon. Um, My my website also has summaries and some links, but they're available in uh, paperback, or some of them are hardcover, uh, Kindle and Audible. So all four books have those three formats. Great. What is the name of your podcast? My podcast is called Where Is My Mind? And it was a series that we released in 2019. I say we because I worked with a production company, Mm -hmm. Blue Duck Media, which traditionally does sports podcasts. So this was pretty new for them to do a show about near-death experiences and and things like that. Um, And I have an old friend from high school, even before high school, um, who who is in the media business and works at at Blue Duck Media. He was my co-host. So he's someone who's newer to this stuff, and I had been researching it for a few years. So we were having a conversation, basically, and I took clips from all the people that I interviewed. I interviewed dozens of experts, and we spliced it in. So it's called Where Is My Mind? Eight episodes, and it's on a lot of the phenomena of consciousness we've talked about. All right, great. I believe you have a YouTube channel, right? I do. I have a YouTube channel with a few old clips of of me talking. Two of my full-length interviews are available from my podcast. The rest are are a a subscription on my website, but two of them. One is with Dr. Bruce Grayson from the University of Virginia, who studies near-death experiences, and my other one with Daniel Brinkley, who's had four near-death experiences each time he came back 
with a, a memory of a life review where he relived his life. He relived the events of his life through the eyes of the people that he impacted. So he felt the good and the bad of what he did to other people. And that was a very profound interview for me. So we put that one on YouTube also. All right. If someone wants to reach out to you and ask you questions, are you open to that? And if so, how can they reach you? Sure. I, I do get emails from time to time. Um, there's a, a website that will, uh, uh, an email address that will get to me. It's team, T-E-A-M, at markgober.com. And you can find that on my website, markgober.com. It has that email address. And also on social media, um, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, it's Mark Gober Author. You can reach out to me there as well. All right, Mark. Well, before we finish up, can you leave us with one last positive message? I think the life review is always something that I think about. It's probably the most profound thing I've learned about this notion that we, or at least some of us, might relive our lives and become the people that we impacted. That's just such a powerful idea. And what I hear from people who've had life reviews repeatedly is they say the little things are the big things. That's what matters in the life review. It's how you treat the cashier. It's not how much money you made in your life. Not to say that money is this horrible spiritual thing because we need it to function, but in the life review, that those aren't the things you're focused on. You're focused on the way you treated people and, and the way you made them feel because you feel it as them. So the one mind, this one consciousness is able to switch lenses somehow in the life review state, you become those people. So that's just something to think about. It's, it's enough to change everything is, yeah. is what I found. Yeah, that's great. Mark, thank you so much for being my guest. I really appreciate you and I wish you massive success in whatever you're doing. Well, thank you so much for having me and thank you for getting these important messages out to the world. Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara podcast. I really appreciate you. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. And if you do, there are loyalty badges and other perks depending on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support.